you, why don't you just, why don't you start us off, um, for, with the summer sessions? Cause you know, this is like your first time, like fully back Yeah. post-marriage. Well, wait, last time. What? <laughs> yeah. But this is like, now we've got like, a guest. <clears throat> that's true. This is my first time back with a guest. So. Welcome, Isabella. It's a pleasure to have you. We're so lucky. Um, Traditionally, we have our guests introduce themselves and and usually tell a little bit about uh, themselves and and what they're up to. Um, And since this is the summer sessions, uh, maybe wrapping up the summer sessions um, as we move into fall. I feel like everyone's talking about fall right now. So, which I'm not ready to let go of summer just quite yet. So tell us what you're doing to keep summer alive. Sure. Um, Even though you're in the LSB right now. (laughs) (laughs) I know that's actually an awful question for me because I've been calling this my bummer girl summer. (laughs) 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 Because I've been in the lab basically all day, every day for the greater majority of the summer. But I guess to introduce myself, I am Isabella Riga and I'm a graduate student. I'm getting my master's degree in environmental science and sustainability at BYU. But my project that I'm doing, so my research for my master's is looking at how different types of disturbances affect water quality and the aquatic ecosystems and what organisms can live in rivers and streams after disturbances, both big and small. And so my main project is looking at how um, really large wildfires affect aquatic biodiversity and the health of rivers and streams. And um, seems like you're in the perfect place for that. (laughs) <laughs> Perfect place for that. I really love it. It's really fun. It does. When I do field work, it does get me out into the mountains, hiking to streams and rivers. But this summer, I'm just um, finishing up my master's thesis, which meant a lot of long days in the lab processing samples and now a lot of long days on my computer processing data. <laughs> and are you... Um... Is, is summer term your last semester or will you finish in December? So I'll officially finish in December, but I'll defend in September because I am moving to Ecuador at the end of September. Right. <laughs> well, now you need to tell us a little bit more about that. <laughs> yeah, totally. So um, a year ago, I applied for the Fulbright scholarship and I found out in April that I got it. And so I'll be moving to Ecuador on a Fulbright scholarship studying and again, kind of keeping with this theme of disturbances affecting water. I'll be studying on this Fulbright how different types of land use affect aquatic biodiversity and the health of river systems in um, high altitude rainforests. Very cool. That's very cool. What's funny. So you're, t- you, 
when you're talking about your, the, what you're studying, um, I remember I took an ecology class at BYU. Um, and mind you, I'm a humanities guy, right? So I'm all about books and literature and philosophy and, you know, a big picture, you know, idea kind of guy. But for, um, the final project in that ecology class, we had to design an experiment. Um, and my experiment that I designed, we didn't have to carry it out, but we just had to design the experiment. And what I, uh, the experiment that I had to try and design, um, was actually about fire and about water at Cascade Springs in, uh, you know, in the, behind Timpanogos. Um, and I remember barely passing because I don't, cause like thinking like a humanities student and thinking like a scientist are very different tracks of uh-huh. mind. And I just was, <laughs> was not good at thinking like a scientist. <laughs> it was very funny. Yeah. It is funny. Like I'm just comparing our two degrees and probably our thesis experiences and uh, that I'm also in environmental studies, but that like our theses are very different <laughs> from one another. And I'm like, wow, uh, you know, there's so many different opportunities within environmental studies. So that's pretty cool. Totally. What, what drew you to uh, like water and, you know, ha- habitat disturbances? Um, uh, it's kind of a weird, I, um, really am interested in like the intersection of human well-being and environmental well-being. So I think they call it planetary health these days, but kind of looking at the whole system, both environmental and Uh, human and seeing how environmental degradation oftentimes caused by humans affect then like come back to bite us right and um I kind of got pulled into this because of the people I was working for as an undergrad and um water is important air is important I don't know you know it's just really they're really important things for us to be able to live we can't live without clean water and so many people are affected by water that gets polluted because of just poor infrastructure or people not thinking about it or because of these major disturbances that cause an influx of pollution so that it's way harder to clean the water that we're using or cause riverways or waterways to dry up or, you know, so that's kind of how I got into this. And as we see increasing disturbances worldwide, we're going to see our water affected worldwide. And especially in the West where we have so little to begin with, um, it's an important thing, I think, to look at and to understand. So as you study these things, what are the like, what are some of the, I don't want to say practical applications because it seems so obvious, like, like you just said, you know, where we have so little water, especially here in the West um, and, and, you know, those kinds of resources are extremely important to us. How, like, how do you apply these kinds of findings and what is your primary outlet for your, your research um, and kind of communicating this to the public? Yeah, totally. So for this project specifically, I think are really important. Uh, so this project, my master's project specifically is looking at 
the Pole Creek mega fire that happened just south of Provo in 2018, and it burned more than 150,000 acres. So it's a really big fire. And we call those really big fires mega fires. And we're seeing an increase in mega fires in the Western United States, as well as other pockets around the world. And as we, you know, we know that fire is good for the most part, right? Our our ecosystem that we live in here evolved with fire. We can't have what we have in the West without fire. And so it's really important. But as we see this increase in really big, really severe, really intense wildfires, as well as more frequent wildfires, we're going to see a difference in how our ecosystems can recover from these disturbances. And with that change, it's going to be really important for us to know how to manage these systems, both to aid in recovery, to try to reduce the number and the severity and intensity of fires. Um, and so kind of communicating our findings to land managers about how the aquatic part of the ecosystems recover after these large fires will hopefully give them information on how they should best manage the water and the land so that we see minimal negative impacts and we can continue to live here you know because we think of in ecology we call them state changes it's when and you push an ecosystem over the edge and the it like restabilizes as a new type of system. And we will start to see these state changes if we don't manage our ecosystems properly, right? And so that's kind of the hope of it. And so this, we communicate a lot with the Utah Division of Natural Resources because they are who are funding this project. And so um, that's kind of our main outlet of communication is to tell them kind of what we're finding and what they should do based on the science that we are producing. What's it like when um, the science butts up against some of the bureaucracy, right? I'm sure we'll touch on that later on, uh, but that is that is that something that happens? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely is something that happens and it is extremely frustrating. Um I don't have as much experience <laughs> with it in this, like wildfire land management. Um, we are just now getting data from our initial sampling events. And so I haven't done a lot of communicating about this, but I, as an undergrad, um, ran a project looking at how air pollution affects human health and the economy, specifically in Utah. And a large part of that was communicating with the legislature and uh, I quickly learned just how aggravating it can be to communicate science. <laughs> yeah, science communication is no small deal. Uh -uh. That's funny. Um, did you, so Abby and I both come from like a humanities, uh, you know, approach to the earth. Did you always know that you were going to be a scientist? Like what drew you to kind of the hard science approach? No, I actually... Um, when I was small, my mom, she still does. So my mom worked for a scientist and she did the business for this company that this woman started, um, selling 
scientific equipment. And so she worked really closely with a chemist who quickly became one of her closest friends. And they used to tell me that I was going to be a scientist when I was older. And one time I told them that I would not be a scientist because they ruined (laughs) science for me. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure why they ruined science for me, but I never thought I would go into science. Um, And then when I, but I was really, I took AP environmental science, my my senior year of high school and I really loved it. So when I was applying to colleges, I applied as like going in as either environmental science or environmental studies or environmental policy, depending on what school I was applying to. And BYU, when I applied, I was not aware of the like environmental humanities stuff they had going on. I think actually Abby is the one who told me about it. (laughs) Um, And So when I joined, when I applied to BYU, I declared my major as environmental science. And I figured, you know, like learning the science behind a system can only help me. And then I figured I would go on to grad school and do some sort of environmental policy or studies or go to law school for environmental law. And um, so I, I declared environmental science. I kind of stuck with it. I tried other things just in case my freshman, sophomore year to see if there was something that I wanted to do or see if I could like find some other way to apply apply environmental issues. And ultimately I just ended up sticking and I started doing research for a professor in the Kennedy Center, so not environmental science. But after doing research for her, I realized that I actually really did enjoy doing research and like coming up with questions that I had about the world and answering them through like these quantitative methods and qualitative methods for that research that I was doing. But then I, so then I was like, you know, my major is environmental science. I should probably give it a try and like try working for a professor in my major. And so I started working for brand new professor here at BYU at the time, Ben Abbott. And Ben Abbott, um, friend of the show. He kind of, even though he did nothing with air quality or legislation or anything, he let me run with what I wanted to do. And so I started kind of coming up with these questions that I had and trying to answer them, coming up with methods based on advice and what I had read to try to answer these questions. And I just kind of fell in love with this way of seeing the world, you know, of just like so many things to explore and so much to know and so much knowledge to gain and going by way of science allows me to answer all these questions in a way that like really lets me explore the planet. I guess the deeper question for me is at what point did you fall in love with the earth? Because I think what I heard underneath that entire story was I was always going to be doing something with the environment. It was just was, you, you know, what, what, uh, system of thought got me there. And so like, you clearly have a connection with the earth. So what, what led to that? Yeah, I have no, <laughs> my mom is one of those moms that, uh, every, her response to everything was go outside. I was homesick. <laughs> it's cause you've been in bed too long. Go outside. <laughs> I was fighting with my siblings, go outside and work it out. I was, everything was go outside and she never cared if we came outside, came inside a mess. She, you know, she just like wanted us to be active and outside and exploring. And so I think that's where 
my start of, you know, my connection started to the planet. And then um, when I took AP environmental science and I started learning like all the intricacies of this earth that we call home, I think that that was like this eye-opening experience for me. And I have like little memories of, um, I don't know, playing in tidal pools and seeing all the different life forms that were there and like just being so curious about all these things that were also living creatures, but looked nothing like me or had completely different functions than me. You know what I mean? And so I have little memories like that in different scenarios and different ecosystems. And, um, and I think that's kind of how my connection with the planet and my love for this earth grew. But I think most of it just started with being forced to be outside for 90% of my life. Thanks, mom. <laughs> Thanks, mom. <laughs> I guess, too, it sounds like um, it'd be pretty difficult to be in your field and not feel some sense of urgency or kind of um, a priority or, or excuse me, like an obligation towards activism in some way or another. Um, and, you know, I guess just by way of um, maybe discussing that, are there any kind of um, campaigns that you're currently involved in or, um, you know, I guess what, what fuels your activism and, and how do you kind of approach activism, um, currently? Yeah. Um, I think that currently I, I recently heard somebody talking about imperfect activism and I think I'm a big advocate of that because, you know, I do as much as I can to be as good as I can, but I still drive a car that runs on gas and I still, you know, I do all these, th I have plastic things that I have to throw. There's like no way to be perfect, but I think that you can't, something that I, the reason why I love science communication so much and why I feel so passionate about it is that scientists as a group are such a small portion of the population, but they produce data and knowledge that can inform best management practices and best living practices to keep you healthy and the planet healthy and all these things. And if we're not communicating that to people, then what are we doing? You know, what's the point of gaining all this knowledge and producing all this information? And so I think a lot of my activism has kind of started, stemmed from there, just communicating what I'm researching and what I'm finding and to the best of my ability and then making recommendations based on that but also talking to my friends about it and about what I see and what I experience and what I learn through my science. And I think that a large part of it too, is then applying what I have learned to myself, you know, like who am I to be making these recommendations if I'm not applying them to my own life. And 
So I think the most basic level of my activism is riding my bike as much as I can or taking public transportation or being a vegetarian or, you know what I mean? Kind of those things. And then talking about it with people and answering questions sincerely and in a way that hopefully never sparks contention, but just informs people um, what I've learned. And then I think the next part would be engaging with groups and meeting with legislators and trying my best to really spread that influence wider. And currently I'm heavily involved in the don't pave Utah Lake stuff. Yes. (laughs) Um, I don't want to see islands on Utah Lake. Um, No one who knows the science does. Um, I feel like most people who know about it don't want it, but that's just, yeah, I would say the same. And actually we just, uh, in response to, uh, Lake Restoration Solutions, the developers who are proposing the project (laughs) in response to an article they just put in the, uh, out in the news about a poll that they did on, that the company did. Yeah, the, a poll that the company did surveying people in Utah Valley um, about who wants the islands to be done. Uh, we did a we did a follow up poll, and like ninety seven percent of people that were that don't want it to happen. So <laughs> <laughs> those aren't exact numbers. That's just from what I can remember, but. Yeah, so I think most people don't want it to happen, but I'm heavily involved in that. And then I'm involved in, you know, smaller things and with local groups and also wider groups. But um, I know you've done some work with the Southern Utah Wilderness mm -hmm, Alliance. Yeah, I've worked with the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. I uh, recently just joined an advisory board for the Utah Valley Earth Forum. Nice. Um, I'm on the science. Protect our winners. I'm on the science alliance for protect our winters. Oh, cool. Um, so a lot of them are really just about like public engagement and increasing your sphere of influence over a certain group of people, right? Whether it's Utah Valley or people who love Southern Utah or the outdoor state, which is what Powell calls their followers. Um, but it's just a lot of trying to get the word out and not just the word about climate activism or caring for the planet, but the word about like science-based information and science-based decisions. Very cool. Who are your favorite science communicators? I don't really know if I have any. Um, I mean, Catherine Hayhoe, I think is like the classic. She's the guy. Everybody loves her. She does an amazing job. But other than that, I don't know if I have any science communicators that I really follow. I met a ton. I just joined POW in like the late spring. And I went to their, they have, they started doing these summits for their different alliances. And so I met a lot of scientists who are actively involved in communicating their science um, among these other POW Science Alliance members. But other than that, yeah, I don't really know if I have a favorite or someone who I really follow that closely. 
What's, uh, what's one of the most difficult things about communicating science to people who don't think like a scientist? Yeah, I'd say the majority of people who are not scientists, their level of science is like dating back to general biology freshman year of college, <laughs> right? Like, and in that general biology class, you more or less learn about the scientific method, but not really. And you even less learn about how a lot of scientists in ecology do their science because it's a lot more observation based than like hypothesis driven. And so it's really hard, I think, to communicate science because of that like gap in how long somebody it's been, especially if I'm talking to legislators or, you know, people have been out of school for 20, 30 years um, that gap in memory of, you know, how does science work? And it's not a subjective thing that we're just like pulling numbers from what we're looking at and telling you based on nothing. There's a process and there's a vetting process to publish papers. And, you know, there's this whole, everything goes with the process. There's statistical law rules that you have to follow. There's all this stuff. And for the most part, scientists do a really good job at following all those things. And if they find an error, they do a really good job at reporting. But every once in a while, there are scientists that don't. And I think that makes it hard because you latch on to those few that do bad science. But also, it's really hard because there's technical terms that you have to try to learn how to communicate in a layman's like vocabulary, you know, which um, or there's like technical processes that or statistical analyses that you do that you have to try to communicate so that they know why these results are significant and other ones aren't. And I think that's kind of what I struggle the most with is people who don't understand the scientific process but think that they do. <laughs> or maybe that have commentary on it. <laughs> yeah, or have commentary on it, or I've had people comment on, this is, I have a lot of, uh, with the air quality stuff, I've had like one legislator told me, I was talking about how much money air pollution in Utah is costing us as a state, which is, about $2 billion a year. And, um, wow. and those are very conservative estimates. And he told me there's no way those numbers could be that high. Cause if they were, we'd be doing way more about it. And I was like, Oh, that is why I'm talking to you about this. You know, it's like, like their responses are sometimes disjointed and they don't actually make sense. But if they were, like understood the science or were trying to understand the science, then it would be more a question. Oh, how did you arrive at this number? Because I've never heard something that big. We should be doing way more about it if it actually is that high. So tell me how you got there or, you know what I mean? Instead, they just like put a stop on it by saying it couldn't be true. <laughs> is that sometimes frustrating? Uh, I just like in my own experience feel like anytime um, I discuss environmental matters, especially with individuals who um, 
are perhaps a little bit more conservative or maybe are business, more business oriented. Um, they tend to be very dismissive of environmental issues um, on behalf of like <laughs> the thought process that like, well, we can't afford to kind of alter our current methods um, or that like, if it doesn't make sense monetarily, then it's not ever going to be um, a viable option for us to move towards. But in some ways, like science, I feel like is the only way or perhaps like substantial method of communicating to people that like we can't afford not to essentially um, in a lot of cases. So for example, your air quality um, story, just like, oh, if it, if it were really costing us that much, then we would, we would actually make a change, but it's like, okay, but also like, what is it costing, you know, the lives of the people who live here? Um, not just financially, but also like with regards to their health or like um, environmental health, you know, like the river, qual water quality, air quality, all of these things that play into one another. I don't know. I, I guess that was a lot of babbling to kind of ask, lead into a question about like, do you feel sometimes frustrated by this constant commodification um, or maybe need to prove the, the like, value, monetary value of the science that you're produ producing? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> In one word, yes, absolutely. 100%. I feel very frustrated very often. Um, I think I felt a lot more frustrated when I first started this, um, science communication journey. When I first started this air quality stuff, I had no idea what I was doing. And Ben, my advisor, had no idea what he was doing. And both of us were just like bumbling around, trying our best to figure it out. And we were just talking about this the other day, actually, how much we have learned in the last three years since I started that and how much um, better our communication is. <laughs> but we talked about it a lot because he was willing to let me do whatever I wanted. And he also wanted to learn how to communicate this stuff. And so we kind of went at it together and it was super fun, but we were really bad at it at first. And it was really aggravating, especially at the beginning, because I didn't really know how to frame my message at first. And I see so much value in just having a healthy planet because of the time I spend outside and the physical activity I get and the way I connect to myself and, and the world and, you know, but most people don't see that inherent value in just a healthy planet. And so then you think, okay, well, obviously they have to start caring if I talk about the thousands of people that die every year because of air pollution or the two to three years that are taken off the average Utah's life because of air pollution, right? Like surely they have to care about that. And still they kind of have heard it enough that they, it just like, it doesn't phase them. And so then I moved, started moving into the economic stuff and I started getting really frustrated because 
they always seem to pose this either or, right? The economy or the earth. And that's like totally not the way it is. And so that's, and so as I kind of went through these frustrations and got really weird comments or bad comments or just like irrelevant comments, I started to learn how to re- keep them on track, but also frame my message to present to them what they care about. Right. And one of the big things I talk about always when I'm talking to like a business driven person is that econ. So this is coming from stone cold economists, right? Not floofy environmentalists that there is a 32 to one return on investment. So for every $1 you put into reducing air pollution, your economy gets about 32 back. And so there's like, so there's these like hard numbers that come from not environmentalists that I started sharing and I started learning and I started kind of reshaping my message and it helped a lot. But it still is so aggravating to see the leaders of our, you know, of our state or our country who are supposed to be making decisions that are in our best interest, but often make poor decisions. And it's not their fault. They, you know, they can only have so much experience and so much background. And oftentimes it's in business and development and economics and stuff like that. Um but I think it's something that we need to learn how to re-message what we're talking about. And for those kinds of people, make it about the money and make it about why it is in their best interest to invest in green infrastructure and renewable energy and, um, and reuse, then reduce, then recycle, right? There's like, or reduce, then reuse, then recycle. But it's so... So yes, it is very aggravating, but also it's been, um, I think really rewarding to, and it's been a steep learning curve, but as I continue to learn, I, um, really enjoyed, it's a fun challenge and an aggravating one. Well, it's like, it's, you know, almost a lesson in empathy and, you know, you hate to reduce it down to something so so basic, but Cause you're right. Cause like from our perspective, we're such tree hugging earth muffins that like the value of a healthy earth is so self-evident that it is as evident as like breathing for me. Right. Yeah. And to, it's hard for me to conceive that there are people alive who don't, who is not as self-evident, you know, and I, instead of like hating them for that, how can I reframe my own brain to then be like, okay, maybe it's not your fault that you can't see the self, you know, the, the, the obviousness that we need the healthy, the, this healthy ecosystem and how can I extend compassion and like gentleness and persuasion in my, in my storytelling to you so that you can meet me on a common playing field. Yeah. And it's been fun. You know, I, uh, kind of went on this little campaign this summer trying to get state and local leaders out on Utah Lake for and it wasn't sure do I am I an anti-island kind of gal absolutely but (laughs) these were not anti-island events they were simply be out on the lake events you know because not enough people interact with the lake and so there's not enough people that 
want to protect it and who love it enough to want to see it like in its healthy, natural state. And so I started, I teamed up with some sailors out on the lake and we started getting state and local leaders out sailing and experiencing the sunset on Utah Lake. And, you know, it was just so beautiful and and enjoyable. And we always brought a scientist who could answer technical questions about the state of the lake and restoration efforts that are currently happening. But so it's fun. It can be so fun to do these kinds of like to reframe your messaging and instead of making it purely about talking about why the environment is so important, it sometimes looks like getting them out into the environment and having them see for themselves how amazing it is. And that was actually a strategy that scientists used up in Salt Lake City earlier this year. They took legislators over Utah Lake on like flyby or Salt Lake, the Great Salt Lake on flybys and in boats on the Great Salt Lake. And they were able to see just how low the water levels were getting and just how important that lake is for our ecosystem and for our air and all these things. And because of that, we saw some really amazing legislation to protect the Great Salt Lake this year in the legislative session. And so, um, we see examples of it being effective and it working. And so it doesn't only have to look like you beating your head against a wall, trying to get them to understand the science. It can be fun and creative and enjoyable. Yeah. And it's also um, a testament, you know, stories like that. I know that stories like that are not, you know, universal, mm-hmm. right. That people can go out on the lake and still come away with really kind of uh, bad ideas about how we can move forward totally. with the lake. Right. But that is not to say that, um, that the power of the landscape itself to, to change people is really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, I just read a book called the, uh, the church of the wild, um, by Vect- Victoria Lawrence, Lawrence. Um, and she talks about how, um, uh, you know, it's really good to do activism. It's great to get people to sign postcards. It's great to, you know, uh, to, to protect the environment. But what we really want is we want people to fall in love with the earth. And then that's the thing that's going to change people, mm-hmm. right? That we can, we can do all the kind of the, the political and activist machinations. But the thing that's really going to drive it home is to just help people fall in love with the planet. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And that's something that I think about a lot. And um, Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about it a little bit in Braiding Sweetgrass, uh, like being indigenous to a place, you know, and it doesn't literally like it doesn't have to be that you have to. The only way you can be indigenous is if your generations before you have all lived in this place. Right. Like but it's being in a place and loving a place so much and just knowing a place. And when when you have those experiences, I think it drives you to, to want to protect it because you just out of pure love, because whether it's the experiences that you had there or some, you know, whatever it might be that drives that love, but being indigenous to a place just means that you know it and you love it. And, and just because of that, right. Like as a result, you want to protect it and you want to see it thrive and last for generations so that your children and your children's children can also love that place, you know? 
It's because you have a relationship mm-hmm. with it. The relationship itself is, is two way and it's powerful. Mm-hmm. I think too, like I, just something you just said, Isabella reminded me um, of like Annie Dillard pilgrim at Tinker Creek and something I read recently um, in Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart, but where she talks about, you know, this kind of polarization of people um, that happens where we, we tend to hate things that we don't know, or, or we tend to um, find it easier to like hate individuals or people um, if we've never met them, which is kind of this ironic, you know, approach to, to like humans, you think it'd be the opposite where like the more you get to know someone, the more you don't like them. But, um, but she kind of said like, it's, it's almost impossible to hate something if you, or someone, if you get to know them. Mm -hmm. And I think like Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker, Tinker Creek is kind of an exhibition of that, um, on an environmental level that, you know, here, you know, maybe she's been jaded to, um, some of the things that have occurred in her backyard, but as soon as she starts to actually analyze them at like even the level of an ant or a blade of grass or, you know, these very kind of microscopic levels of detail, she really starts to, and I don't think she was, you know, not in love with them before, but it just enhances her love and appreciation for even the smallest of things that are in her own backyard. And, um, I don't, I don't know. I think you're, you're 100% right that like these things that we, um, experience on a day-to-day level may become we may become apathetic towards them but as soon as we start to really observe them from a different perspective it's it's perhaps the thing that could save them Um, how does this, so Briscoe and Fires, you know, we're all about the earth and stuff, but we also have this spiritual, um, uh, element to us. How does, you know, the science and the activism, uh, factor into your faith and spirituality? Um, yeah, I, that it's, <laughs> I have no idea how to answer that. It's such a good question. And I, um, feel so connected to a greater power and right. I mean, if we're going Christianity, Mormonism, I feel so connected to my heavenly parents and to my savior when I'm out in nature. And I've heard different people give like different explanations as to why they think that might be based on LDS doctrine or whatever it is. But I have no idea. All I know is that I feel like so connected to greater beings and to myself. And I feel like such a part of a greater scheme and a greater thing when I am out in nature experiencing all these non-human creations that were created alongside us and that have spirits and our beings that are just so incredible and unique and cool that it's hard for me 
do you know what I mean? I don't really know if I'm answering this question, but I just like feel so connected on a spiritual level to this planet and my science just kind of helps me understand it better and connect even more because I get to answer these questions about this planet and these organisms and these things that these other creations, you know, and, and I get to understand how they live and why they live and how can I make a better place for them to live. And, um, I think that it's a special thing that I get to do. And I don't know, kind of going back to something that in braiding sweetgrass, um, I, Robin Wall Kimmerer wrote this in one of the chapters, she talks about like love letters to the earth and how scientists are often perceived as like these very cold, hard data, Excel spreadsheets, you know, whatever it is, sterile hoods that you work in, latex gloves, like whatever it is. Um, And I totally feel that way because I do molecular ecology. And so I have to make sure that everything is like super, like no contamination because it's all DNA. Um, But it's a a love letter to the planet, you know, get doing this science and being an ecologist, you know, helps me understand entire systems and how they work and why they work and who does what in the system to help it run. Because we know that if you remove just one or two of those organisms, it could completely change or fail. And so I think that my science just helps me understand this planet that I love so much and it makes me love it even more and which in turn helps me feel even more connected to to our creators and to you know my non-human brothers and sisters (laughs) I love what she says in that chapter too I think it's that chapter when she's talking about how um, she's been on a thesis committee for several different theses defenses um, over the years. And I think there was like one instance um, where someone, a, a girl was defending her thesis and someone made a comment like, you seem too emotionally invested in this. Um, and she, in that moment was like, well, yeah, like, shouldn't we all be emotionally invested in like the work that we're doing and these things that we care about? Like it would be so incredibly um, like illogical for us to divorce our kind of emotions from, from the science, I guess, in that way. And, and I mean, to a certain extent, I think um, that is kind of like the role of a scientist is to present data Um, but at the same time, it's like, of course, we want to be emotionally invested in this work because we care about it. We want, you know, what's best for, you know, the planet and for people. And I think, I don't know, I just really resonated with what you said at the very beginning as well with like the idea of seeing that kind of bridge between where where humans and the earth intersect because I think there's far too much separation of the two. Um, and so I, I just really appreciated that comment. 
Um, I guess the extension of, you know, some of that question is, you know, I, well, first I think that we've, uh, you know, the history of Christianity has unfairly created a false dichotomy between science and faith, right? Like I'm just, I'm so over (laughs) pretending that they're like, you know, antagonists, um, when, you know, like some of the most spiritual books that I've read happen to be some of the most scientific books that I've read because there's an intimacy with, uh, with, with the earth and the processes that are at work. And you can kind of see some like divine fingerprints at work. And it's just, it's really, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty cool. Um, but the other side of that coin is that, you know, when you're doing science communication, you're doing activism. Um, what is it like to be a political activist in a faith community that hasn't quite learned how to value activism? Wow. Loaded question. That one. (laughs) It's a little, I mean, yeah, it's a little loaded unless you have a completely different experience than I do. I don't think I do, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, what is so wild to me about that whole issue of it's like the most interesting Connect, like way that all these worlds collide because if you go purely on LDS doctrine, right? Like we are a church that loves the planet and should take care of the planet and are like totally, if you solely based on doctrine are like total environmentalists, right? And I'm sure you both have heard George Hanley's list of just like all of the doc, you know, scriptures and doctrine of all the reasons why our church is an environmentalist church. And it just blows my mind that we are in a state that is run mostly by one religion. And, you know, a lot of our leaders in this state are members of the LDS church and, Yet we don't, we see this like total separation. And for some reason, they don't apply that really important part of our doctrine to their lives. And it is super frustrating. But again, it's kind of been in learning how to message it in a way that they can see, right, that it is part of their faith to protect the planet and to protect people and by protect, you know, like this is, if you only look at it selfishly, you don't, it's not this like pure environmental. Save the trees. Yeah. Save the trees. If you look at it selfishly, like we have to save the planet. There's no option. Like if we don't take care of this planet, we will die. The planet will be fine. It will come back. It always does. We will die. And, you know, that's a part of our message as a church is taking care of our brothers and sisters and, and administering to the poor and right. There's like all these things and I don't know how to drive it through their heads. Um, But, but I think it all comes along with just learning how to message things to the people that you're talking to. And if it means messaging it in like a religious way, then you message it in a religious way so that they can see religiously why they should be, you know, why the com- the commandments that they're keeping, why the uh, covenants that they made include protecting this planet. I think um, that's a really, really good point is like in the same way that you've probably had to learn, like you said, to appeal to certain politicians and, and maybe some legislators um, using kind of language or, 
or at least vernacular that um, is appealing and kind of conducive to to change on their level. Like, I do think that there's something to be said about, you know, utilizing doctrine to motivate people to do the same within the church. Um, <clears throat> I do, I like in the same way that I think it can be somewhat taxing to do so on like a <laughs> legislative level. I think there's a lot of um, maybe social or kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, bureaucratic methods or, or structures in the church that exist that sometimes prohibit that as well. Um, but I think like, I don't know, I love the idea of like continued activism, utilizing doctrine <laughs> um, as, as like a very foundational motivator for people. And I think that's like the only way that we can appeal to everyone within the church, because I think just coming at it from, you know, maybe more of a humanist or a scientist um, angle uh, presents it just as that, as like an angle. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I think like, I don't know. I just am in support of what you just said. I keep rambling, you guys. Sorry. And most of the time I'm just agreeing. <laughs> well, that's what a podcast is designed for. <laughs> it's designed for talking. <laughs> but. Um, so our, uh, I don't want to keep you all night, but our, uh, I have been doing activism for a while and I know you have, and Abby has, it's hard work. Um, you know, you don't get a lot of wins. Um, and when you do, they're really great, but it is kind of an uphill uh, slog a lot of the times. What do you do for restoration? Like personal restoration? Yeah. Um, I get outside. <laughs> the basic, I mean, right? Just going back to what my mom taught me, the answer to everything is to just get outside. And I find myself, um, when I love to swim, I love to hike and I love to climb and I never, I can always run the fastest and the longest and climb my hardest routes when I am feeling really angsty about something. <laughs> <laughs> it also helps because it usually temporarily takes my mind off things and also helps me like get out to my energy but I find that getting out into the mountains or getting into some lakes or whatever it might be really helps me kind of reconnect with like restabilize my mind and my heart and my soul and um remember why I Put, I'm doing this like why do I put some invest so much energy into these sometimes futile sometimes never ending sometimes seeming to never be successful right like there's all these times that just and all these things that seem like you're just never gonna do it it's just never gonna work but sometimes it does and 
And so getting out into these places that I have just come to love so deeply helps me kind of reconnect and restore my energy levels and my passion and my desire to do good and to protect these places. And, um, and I read, I like to read a lot. And I think that's kind of my main ways of restoring Right on. Restoration. <laughs> um, so uh, we're, uh, you're headed to Ecuador next. Um, do you have any uh, grand designs for the shape of your life? Please tell me that I get to vote you into office <laughs> at some point. <laughs> um, yeah. I would do it. I would vote you in so quick. <laughs> Thank you. Um I don't know. So I'll be in Ecuador for a year and then I hopefully will start a PhD program next year when I get back. And um, this is kind of what I have always told people. Well, not always for the last little bit. If I could create my plan of my life, I would finish my PhD and then go work in like international environmental policy or, you know, do something where I can just, I'm international politics are super interesting to me and do something where I can kind of try to work in that field. And then I want to be a professor and then I want to retire and be a park ranger. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good life. Ideal, really ideal situation. Which uh which park? Oh. Um Well, I don't know. I'm torn because I love my western parks. I love my Utah parks and I would totally go down to like Canyonlands or Moab pro- or Arches probably would be um among my top parks, but I also would love to be in the Everglades or uh, Dry Tortuga National Park on the Keys. Um, I would totally be in one of those places too. So I don't know. Right on. Those are very different places. They are very different places, (laughs) but they have kind of, I grew up in Chicago, but my mom worked for a company that was based in Florida and she went to the university of Miami. So she has a ton of really close friends that live down there. And so while I grew up officially in Chicago, I spent a lot of my time down in South Florida on the beach. And so I just love the ocean. And then I came to Utah and I fell in love with the mountains. So and the desert, very different places, but two places that are very formative in my environmental journey. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, Isabella, you've been a joy to have on the podcast. Uh, I, we've been in a lot of the same circles and I'm glad to have had the opportunity to actually sit down and talk to you and get to know your background and, you know, uh, what fuels you. Um, any final words of wisdom for our audience? Um. This is always my thing that I say at the end of any interview like thing, but um, contact your legislators. (laughs) (laughs) It's something I feel really passionate about because I never did. I always thought that it was really hard, like that they wouldn't respond or they wouldn't care. And to an extent, I don't always know how much they actually care, but 
you know, they're in office to represent their constituents and you are their constituent, you know? And when I started this air quality stuff and I started contacting them, I realized just how responsive they are and how they actually do respond and listen and contact, you know, like I've had many conversations on the phone, in person, over Zoom, whatever, with a lot of them. And I think that people don't realize just how important it is to contact them because the main demographic of people that does reach out to them are older, retired folks, you know, and so they don't hear from a huge portion of their constituents that care about these things. And because of that, a lot of times what their constituents actually care about is not represented because they don't hear from them. And so my number one thing is just contact your legislators. They do listen. And it's a really important thing. Like our democracy is based on this. Like you have to contact them so that they know who it is they're representing and what, and what are the desires of their constituents. Right on. <laughs> what campaigns specifically would you direct the, uh, you know, an audience to, to learn about and to contact them about? Um, at the moment, my main focus is Utah Lakes. <laughs> if you live in Utah, especially Utah County, contact your legislators and tell them you care about Utah Lake and that you don't want to see islands on it because it would ruin a lot of things for us here in Utah County and Utah as a whole, as well as the Intermountain West as it's the third largest freshwater lake. It's super important for the West. And if we destroy it, we're pretty much screwed. So. And it feeds into the Great Salt Lake. Feeds into the Great Salt Lake. They're one ecosystem. They're, they're not separate Yeah, they're, they used to literally be one. They used to be Bonne, Lake Bonneville, right? And now they are technically, if you look at them, they look like two separate entities. They are not, they are completely connected. And so if you're listening and you don't know what to pay attention to, pay attention to Utah Lake and don't let it get paved over. 